Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nikki boy, today's episode of the podcast is presented by Podgo. You know who Podgo is, Nick? Of course I do. Who's paying us to talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> that is right. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space. You always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. If you got a podcast that you just started up, go to podgo.co, P-O-D-G-O.co, and be sure to add our podcast, Can We Please Talk?, in the how did you hear about Podgo section of the application. Hey, everybody. Welcome to an all-new episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, Maggie Astor from the New York Times is going to be joining us. She has done a fantastic job covering all of the voting elections coming up this Tuesday. So if you want to know how to vote and where to vote and what states and some big races that are happening, Maggie wrote a fantastic piece on that. Plus, she's written some other articles on the tragedy that happened out in New Mexico with Alec Baldwin. We're going to get into a bunch of stuff with Maggie. Plus, later on in the program, Nick and I are going to dive deep into news judgment. We're going to explain a little bit more what we mean. But first, Maggie Astor, the fantastic reporter over at the New York Times, joining us here on the Can We Please Talk podcast. Maggie, Mike and Nick, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thank you for having me. So, Maggie, I wanted to get into one of the pieces you just recently posted today, and I, and I reached out to you. Uh, I truly do read a lot of your articles and follow you. She's a great follower on social media, by the way, folks. Um, you just recently posted an article about elections and giving people kind of a, like, a, where do I vote this week? And some of the big races that are happening. I live in New York City. The mayoral race is happening here. You have the governor race that's happening in Virginia. Why don't you take our audience, if you can, a little bit into that piece and overview and, and really some of the key races and, and where can people vote? There's a bunch that you put in that article. I would love for you to dive into that with our audience. Absolutely. Uh, so there are a number of races on the ballot on Tuesday, uh, depending on your state. Uh, there will be uh, statewide elections for governor in uh, Virginia and New Jersey. There are also various statewide elections in Colorado, Maine, Pennsylvania, Texas, uh, Washington State, um, and those range from an election to the uh, to the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, to various ballot initiatives, constitutional amendments, referendums, that sort of thing. And in addition to those statewide elections, there are elections happening at the local and county levels in many other states. Um, and there's <laughs> there's really too many local elections to list, but uh, if anybody goes to their state's election website or Secretary of State's website, um, or to a third party reference like Vote411, for instance, uh, you can look up exactly what's on the ballot in your area. 
Maggie, in the, in the coverage you've been doing around that, are there obviously in the Virginia election stands out? Um, I formerly lived in New Jersey, so obviously we pay attention to that. New Jersey, of course, is one of the few states that does the you know the election on the odd number, <laughs> but that's yep. that is how New Jersey rolls. Um, but aside from those governor races, you know what is what are, what are a couple of races that stand out to you that that's not getting nearly as much attention but do hold sway? You mentioned, for example, uh, the Supreme Court election in Pennsylvania. Yes, there is. And I haven't been covering that election specifically, so I can't go into a lot of detail about it. But certainly the the state Supreme Courts in any state are a really, you know, they are really underrated, I think, in terms of their importance. Uh, Those uh, those are the courts that are resolving huge questions there you know, resolving the uh, the constitutionality of various state laws under the state constitution, as opposed to the federal. Um, they hear lots of election law challenges. You know, the state Supreme Courts, whatever state you're in, are really incredibly influential. Uh, and in many cases, including in Pennsylvania, they are elected and they're actually, uh, you know, elected sometimes partisan offices, unlike at the federal level. Um, So that's absolutely something that if you live in Pennsylvania, you should be paying attention to that. Oh, perfect. Because Nick lives in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And on the subject, when we think about elections, I also think about recently a just really awesome article that you wrote about the, the possible, the possibility of a particular uh, voting rights opportunity or voting rights legisla- legislation that is getting at its origin some bipartisan support. And this speaks specifically to indigenous people. Maggie, could you take us more through that? Yes. So that's referring to the Native American Voting Rights Act, uh, which was introduced uh, in, I believe, August um, by Uh, It it was introduced in the House by Representatives Tom Cole, who is a Republican from Oklahoma, and Representative Sharice Davids, who is a Democrat from Kansas. Um, And that bill essentially would, um, it would let Native American tribes determine the number and location of voter registration sites on their reservations, um, as well as the number and location of polling places, ballot drop boxes, Um, It would prevent states from closing or consolidating those sites on reservations without the consent of tribal leaders. And it would also require states that have voter identification laws to accept tribal identification uh, to fulfill that requirement. And so this is a, you know, it's it's a very targeted uh, voting rights bill, um, but it addresses what has been a, a a really major voting rights issue in recent years. Uh, There have been huge obstacles to voting for Native Americans, uh, especially on reservations because of uh, the geographical obstacles. They often live in pretty remote areas. Um, The infrastructure isn't always strong. Uh, Many of them have to travel, you know, long distances to vote or even to register to vote. They don't always have traditional addresses or reliable mail service. So voter ID laws that require a residential address as opposed to a PO box can be problematic for them. Um, So they are 
definitely one of the groups that uh, that has been very heavily affected by voting restrictions in the past few years. Um, and the the fate of this bill is is totally undetermined. It's still in very early stages, and it's impossible to say whether it will get enough support to pass. Uh, but the fact that it does have those bipartisan sponsors is more than you can say for most voting related legislation. Well, Maggie, I mean, I hate to play Captain Obvious here, but I'm wondering there's certain things that you met in there that you said in there. Right. Uh, groups that are affected that can't get to polling places. Right. Um, a lot of that stuff is happening in states right now, specifically in Texas. We saw what happened uh, in one of their biggest counties and, and the rules that they changed there. We've had a couple of correspondents on from some of the Texas uh, papers down there. Why can't something like this, at least the framework of this for universal voting voting rights, why can't it get some type of bipartisan support at the federal level? Am I being reductive in saying that it's all because of the big lie and what one party is continuing on? Or is there more to that? I mean, the, you know, the issues <laughs> surrounding um, the lies about last year's election and the, you know, stoking of this false idea that, you know, that it was stolen or that various aspects of it were fraudulent or, or all of that. Yes, that is certainly fueling an enormous amount of the partisan uh, division on this point. Essentially, uh, former President Trump has made it kind of an, an item of Republican loyalty to, to go along with these lies. Um, and has attacked many Republicans who don't go along with them. Um, so there's certainly uh, there's certainly pressure there. And I mean, but even before even before the 2020 election, uh, there was a very stark partisan divide on voting rights. Uh, and even in past cycles, there have been a lot of restrictive laws passed at the state level. Uh, overwhelmingly by Republican state legislators. And there have been uh, efforts at voting rights legislation at the federal and state level, mostly by Democrats. So uh, that partisan divide really does predate Trump. Um, and I don't know that I can, you know, illuminate all the history and reasons behind that in a, in a short period of time, but certainly, uh, uh, President Trump's, you know, comments and rhetoric have exacerbated it. Yeah, <laughs> there's really no other, no other way to sort of sum that up aside no. from that. Um, you know, on the on the subject of, of voting, um, redistricting obviously is part of this conversation too. I know you've done some reporting around that um, specifically as it relates to, I believe like 14 districts that are sort of part of this conversation. Maggie, can you take us through sort of our, where we are currently with this conversation about redistricting and what impact are you seeing potentially with maybe not so much this election, but with 2022? Yeah, absolutely. Redistricting is going to be a huge factor in determining who controls Congress after the 2022 elections. Um, some of my colleagues have done reporting uh, indicating that, you know, 
it is at least theoretically possible for Republicans to retake the House solely on the basis of redistricting, um, simply by creating more safe Republican seats. Um, and uh, we have certainly seen that playing out in some states. The governor of Texas uh, signed a map the other day um, that uh, is, you know, that is designed to be very favorable to Republicans, that, it, that is gerrymandered for Republicans. Um, but there are a couple, you know, factors um, <clears throat> making it such that the, you know, the advantage for Republicans based on gerrymandering might not be quite as stark as, um, as had been expected, say, last year. Uh, Republicans do absolutely still have an advantage in gerrymandering. That's there's no question about that. Uh, but because of uh, a couple states that Democrats control, uh, New York and Illinois uh, mainly, um, Democrats are likely going to have more opportunities to do their own gerrymandering than um, it seems like they might uh, last year. And another factor is that the uh, census numbers that came out, the you know the really detailed data, um, was a little more favorable to urban and suburban areas than had been expected. There was more population loss in rural, conservative-leaning areas, more population growth in cities, um, and so that sort of population breakdown made the numbers a little more favorable for uh, for Democrats, but simply by virtue of the fact that they control more state legislatures, Republicans do have the advantage there. And they've already they've already cemented that in Texas, although I'm sure there will be lawsuits over that. Um, and the processes in many other states are continuing. Uh, while a few states have passed their maps, we're still in the early stages of the process overall. Maggie, I wanted to shift gears because um, and one of the reasons that I invited you on the program was I saw an article of yours about vaccine mandates and how they're an American tradition. And so yes. is the backlash. And uh, we we recently had Ellie Honig on the program, the former DOJ prosecutor and CNN legal analyst talking about, and this was around August, talking about the legalities behind mandates. And it was really around what Governor DeSantis was doing in Florida with the cruise lines, right? And mandating that they couldn't allow, you know, vaccine passports and then the cruise ships circumventing that by saying, okay, you can hang out on this part of the boat. Um, I would love for you to take our audience through a little bit of your article and what it referenced back when smallpox was happening and the mandates, but then also how we see history repeating itself. I, I find it myself just for me, uh, and again, I'm a minor in law, um, I find it hysterical that people don't understand mandates, that people don't understand you know, a company uh, changing its policy to add a rule. And if you don't adhere to it, you will lose your job. You don't have a constitutional right to play point guard for the Brooklyn Nets. You know? So I'm, I'm shocked that people don't get this, but you have historical information and you, you spoke with a professor about this. So I would love for you to take our audience through that piece. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I can, I certainly know that the, you know, the, the current situation uh, feels in many respects, like, surely this must be a, you know, historical aberration. Surely it wasn't like this in the past. 
Um, but it very much was. Uh, obviously, before before smallpox was eradicated, there were many, many smallpox outbreaks um, in the early United States and, and in the colonies, even before the United States. Um, and uh, even as far back as uh, the Revolutionary War, actually, uh, George Washington mandated smallpox inoculations, vaccinations didn't exist then, but uh, they would actually take some live smallpox virus and rub it into a, an open wound to create a mild infection that would guard against uh, severe infection later. Obviously, that was uh, much cruder and much more dangerous than modern vaccinations, uh, to say the least. But, uh, but nonetheless, Washington uh, mandated smallpox inoculations for the Continental Army um, during an outbreak there because he was concerned that if smallpox were to tear through the army, uh, it would be more dangerous than, than anything that the British could, could throw at his army. Um, but, uh, but where things really got interesting and where we really see the parallels today is at the uh, turn of the 20th century. So around 1898 to 1903, um, states started imposing smallpox vaccine mandates uh, in response to some really severe outbreaks. Um, and people, people freaked out. Um, there are you know, news articles and health board reports from that time describing crowds of parents marching to schoolhouses to demand that their unvaccinated children be allowed in. Um, there were actually some people who, uh, smallpox vaccination leaves this very characteristic scar on the arm. So it's hard to, it, it's not like you can just fake a vaccination certificate. So some people would actually burn their arms with acid to mimic the, um, the smallpox vaccine scar, um, to get around these mandates. That's, uh, that's according to um, Michael Wilrich. He's a professor of history at Brandeis who has written about the uh, history of smallpox and vaccine mandates in the US. Um, so there was, there was intense opposition to the mandates at that time. And that culminated with the um, Jacobson v. Massachusetts uh, ruling in 1905. Uh, that was a Supreme Court ruling that basically that legally speaking, it resolved the question of whether mandatory vaccinations were constitutional. It said, yes, they were. Um, and there is a, um, you know, a relative, relatively famous, I guess, within the realm of people who study these things, uh, quote from uh, the ruling from Justice John Marshall Harlan, um, who said that the Constitution, quote, does not import an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint. Real liberty for all could not exist under the operation of a principle which recognizes the right of each individual person to use his own, whether in respect of his person or his property, regardless of the injury that may be done to others. So basically, you don't have a it's kind of a very fancy way of saying your right to swing your arm stops at my nose. Um, and so legally speaking, vaccination mandates are on a very solid ground because of this ruling in uh, 1905 that's been resolved for a long time. Uh, but in terms of, you know, public opinion, the 
issue has never been resolved. And vaccines we've had since then where you didn't see as much opposition, like you didn't really see this sort of response to uh, to polio vaccinations or until relatively recently to measles vaccinations. Um, but the thing about those was that initially they weren't mandated. Um, the mandates came later. And so um, the, the historical analogy that's really most comparable to the current situation is uh, the smallpox one and people reacted very much the way they did now. That's great insight. Uh, I didn't know some of that. So that's great insight. I appreciate you sharing that, Maggie. Absolutely. I actually love that that quote from that justice. Um, the darn Jimmy doesn't apply to gun laws. Anyway, um, <laughs> he's thinking about um, legis- just going back to legislation in terms of what we're seeing federally. Um, you know, recently we've seen the constant you know battle between Senator Joe Manchin, you know, with the Democrats um, in terms of most recently as it relates to um, paid family leave. Megan, what's your read so far in terms of some of these federal bills or some of these bills that are being brought up in terms of infrastructure uh, and some of the other initiatives that the Democrats have been sitting on for quite a while and seem like there's pressure to to start making some headway in the form of voting? Yes. So that's um, so that's not really my wheelhouse. I mean, I've certainly been following it, but uh, the uh, congressional reporters in our Washington bureau have been taking the lead on that. Um, but, uh, certainly I can say that, um, the white house and congressional Democrats really want to reach a deal on this, uh, budget reconciliation bill. The, you know, um, what was originally a 3.5 trillion package, it's now being cut down to maybe 1.5, 2 trillion. It's all in flux. Um, but that includes a lot of social safety net um, and climate provisions. And uh, President Biden in particular would really like at least the framework of a deal on that in the next day or two, because he will be going to a international climate summit in Glasgow that starts, um, I believe it starts over the weekend. Um, And he really wants to be able to go there and say, look, Congress is going to pass this bill with these specific climate measures. Um, the U.S. is doing its part and he wants to you know, have that in hand to sort of pressure uh, other countries to also take action to reduce emissions. Um, really remains to be seen whether they will reach that framework agreement uh, by that deadline. Um, things are still really in flux. Obviously, Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, um, they have been objecting to a number of provisions in the bill and in particular, um, a number of mechanisms used to pay for the spending in the bill, various, you know, tax reforms. So, you know, that's, that's really what I can tell you about, uh, about where it stands. Maggie Astor, you do fantastic work. Uh, I say this all the time. People probably get sick of me saying fantastic, but I wouldn't put normal people on. I put people that do fantastic work on. Maggie, (laughs) uh, she's a great follow on social media. Uh, I truly do love all your articles. I really did appreciate that vaccine mandate article. So thank you for that. Uh, Continued success to you. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. 
Nick, today's episode of the pod is presented by Stamps.com. Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. I know you you use Stamps.com. I do. I do. Look, look love Stamps, don't love the post office. No, That's always does. been my story. I, I know, does. sadly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is true. I mean, like stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. The other day, I, I remember uh, our old apartment back in Florida, they needed me to mail them something. And I was like, you guys can't do this over uh, Zelle, email, any other <laughs> communication tool that we have. And they were like, no, can you please mail it to us? So I'm like, great. Now I got to go get a stamp. Where am I getting the mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right, Nick. That's what the copy here says. It says tell a story. I'm telling you a story. Listen, folks. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, which I bet you Nick's wife probably has, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer, Nick. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want. And you'll get an exclusive discount on postage and shipping from UPS and the U.S. Postal Service. So once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup, drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com, new rate advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timeline to easily find the best option. Never go to the post office again. All you got to do is just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in POD. That's promo code POD at stamps.com. Never go to that post office again, folks. All right. That was the fantastic Maggie Astor from the New York Times. Uh, Like I mentioned, follow her on social media. Uh, Subscribe to the New York Times. You know, Nick is going to give you that spiel about paid journalism. Um, I want to get into our topic for today, Nick. You and I were talking about this. And in our first, first episode that we did, we did news judgment. We talked about my experiences working in a newsroom at a couple of different places, specifically the time that I spent at Fox News. And when I was at Fox News, one of the things that we did at the top and bottom of every hour, they don't do it anymore, uh, was nightly news cut-ins. Uh, the top five stories that are making headlines. And I was thinking about this the other day because I wanted to bring that over here into this show because when people look at news now and they watch, if, if you're not doing what I mentioned on the first episode, which is kind of surfing the dial, similar to what Mike Emanuel, who came on from Fox News, said, similar to what Naveed Jamali said on this program, other people that work as either analysts or correspondents in the news sphere, They've all said the same thing. You got to shop around, similar to buying a car. You got to shop around and you take a series of facts, right? And you say, okay, these are the commonalities in terms of the facts, right? So how does that work? There's a fire in Queens, okay? One place says two people are dead. One place says three people are dead. Another place says nobody has died yet, okay? What are the set of facts? That there was a car, that there was a fire, it happened in Queens, The other stuff is in dispute. So that is news judgment in and of itself. The reason why we're bringing that over here is because lately media coverage of vaccine mandates and media coverage of this topic that has become so polarized, Nick and I wanted to kind of break down what it means to be, you know, have news judgment on this. Take a listen to, we're going to play a couple of different clips here from two different news outlets. Okay. Take a listen to one of these clips 
and then we're going to come back and react. Let's start with the question on the minds, I'm sure, of many of our viewers. I'm vaccinated. Why do I need to wear a mask? Mm-hmm. So this is, this is what they're saying. The, the, the new thing here, we've known for some time that vaccination rates aren't where, where they should be. We've known for some time that the Delta variant has become dominant. We already knew that. So what changed now is your question. What the, the, new, the new data that the CDC is talking about basically states that someone who is a vaccinated person who develops an infection, a so-called breakthrough infection, could be carrying the same viral load, the same amount of virus in their nose or mouth as someone who is an unvaccinated infected individual. So vaccinated infected, unvaccinated infected, they may carry the same amount of virus. It does not mean that that vaccinated person is getting sick. It does not necessarily mean that, uh, that, that anything else is sort of different in terms of how the vaccines work. It still works really well at keeping that person from getting sick. But could they still transmit? Mm. That is what Dr. Walensky is talking about, this idea that it's possible. It's rare because the breakthrough infections aren't that common in the first place. So what we're talking about is not something that would happen frequently. But I think as the curves go up and we're going into the fall, I think they've decided that they want to introduce this indoor vaccinated masking again to try and get control of this. So now we're going to play another clip Okay, from another network, you're gonna know the name. You're gonna know. You're gonna know the voice as soon as I play this clip. But take a listen to this clip. If vaccines work, why are vaccinated people still banned from living normal lives? Honestly, what's the answer to that? It doesn't make any sense at all. If the vaccine is effective, there is no reason for people who have received the vaccine to wear masks or avoid physical contact. So maybe it doesn't work, and they're simply not telling you that. So Nick, news judgment. We've talked about this a bunch. We've had a bunch of people on the program about it. We, damn it, we just had a correspondent on <laughs> literally uh, 10 minutes before. So both of those clips have two different things. The first clip, right, has an anchor asking a question to somebody who's a medical expert about the topic, right? Giving you informed opinion. Somebody that works in the field, giving you an informed opinion based on data sets. The second one is not an anchor. The second one is an opinion commentator. An opinion commentator is disguising as an anchor. And I think people lack that hierarchy of who's what and on what network, right? There's no disclaimer at the bottom that says, FYI, this is an opinion show. There's no, you know, similar to like we've seen with OAN and Newsmax having to put disclaimers before some of their programming that, hey, you know, we don't support anything that happened here with the elections and Dominion and stuff like that. So that's the first distinction. But the second part of it is really the part that people are, are missing, right? The set of facts, the, what commonalities are in both of those pieces that I played that carry over? None. Because the second one was someone's opinion, and the first one was somebody's fact. I would love for you, because you work in education, you've talked about digital literacy, you've talked about media literacy, even when we've had Sabrina Rodriguez on from Politico. Uh, give me some of your takes as it relates to not only what you're seeing in the news fear from how vaccine mandates are being covered, you know, the minority being given this voice, people that are willfully choosing to leave their jobs, versus... The, the news judgment itself overall. Yeah, I mean, it, I feel like there's a couple of places to go here. Um, it, it's funny because a moment ago you said that 
there was no you, you asked an, a, um, a rhetorical question like what do these two things have in common your answer was that they don't have anything in common and the funny thing is that's how i would know you're someone who's worked in the media because structurally you're right you have an anchor asking a question of someone in the field a medical expert on the other side you have someone who's also behind the desk but simply giving commentary so structurally you're correct here's what someone outside the media would find in opposition to what you just said which is there is something in common they're both talking about vaccines and therein lies the problem so if you have for example i i subscribe to the washington post mike and i are both subscribers to the new york times um when you look at a digital app the way that the content is aggregated you'll see very clearly where it says a very important word here opinion so in in the washington post this app does this really often where you'll scroll through things and by visually it still has like the title or the headline in bold and then you have like sort of a small subscript for the actual language of the article and if you're not careful and as you're scrolling through and it's so funny yes this is a visual medium but mostly you all hear the audio and as i say that i keep moving my hand up and down like you're all seeing what i'm talking about right as you're scrolling through an app or that particular news app if you're not careful you can't tell the difference like you'll just click on anything and want to read and that's great you should be reading obviously but you have to be very careful what exactly you're reading. What's what's great about newspapers is that newspapers have always been organized in that sense. When I pick up a newspaper, a physical newspaper, there are sections to it. I know where the news section is. I know where the local news section is. I know where the sports section is. Um, and I know where the editorials are. Like you just kind of, you know, it's in a certain, it's in the either A or the B section of the newspaper. It's very bold print opinions. And in that opinion section, you have certain people who are just, this is what they do. They just run off at the mouth with whatever hot take they want to give. And it's funny, we talk about hot takes now in television, but that's been the case kind of with newspapers forever. You know, famously, I think about, and I'm going to totally date myself here, um, Phil Mushnick, you know, who's a writer for, I believe it was the New York Post or, or Newsday. New York Post. Um, thank you. And and Phil's entire, and Phil was a sports writer, but he basically was talking about sports and media. And he would always just have these rants about like coverage. And he would talk about some person in the me- in the sports media, but Phil was simply giving editorial. Like there's no, to have him talk about this is no different than hearing, say, Mike Francesa talk about sports, you know, from WFAN famously. Um, in both cases, they're just giving you their opinion. And I can't say that enough. That in television, and and Mike, I shout you out, I shout out Naveed, and um, Mike Emanuel did a great job of this too, of explaining that time is very important in in news television production, that between the hours of 8 and 10, what's in your face, regardless of network, and this is to people who listen to the show and have said things about, well, you you lean left and blah, blah, blah. And personally, feel however you want, just keep subscribing because you're listening to the good stuff and and well-informed stuff, I may add. Um, so thank you to, to all you who do that. But to those who question sort of our, our leanings here, understand that what we're asking you to do is to really treat this as a buffet, to go to these different outlets, absorb information, but be discerning about it and understand that when it comes to television news, the prime time between the hours of eight and 10 is really a platform, regardless of network, for people to editorialize. Um, there was recently... Actually, it wasn't recent, but this is from a clip from uh, I found on TikTok. 
uh, from Lewis Black, who taught, who basically deconstructed what television news looks like, which essentially in his joke, it just comes down to one anchor who then goes from a news story, brings it to a circle of like six people, talking heads. Uh, and I, I've seen CNN enough that I've seen this happen often. And it's just people simply talking about something. And the funny thing is that if you're not careful, you interpret that as, well, they're all having an informed opinion about X. And maybe, but maybe not. It's mostly a panel of people sort of giving their opinion. Um, I'll go ahead and date myself further. For some of you who remember on Sunday mornings before football kicked off, you remember the McLaughlin group, which was on NBC, which usually took, they recorded, or the show was on from like 10 to 10.30 in the morning, um, usually before Meet the Press or after, I always forget. Um, and clearly now you know how I roll on Sunday morning television viewing. Yeah. But but that was the same thing. Like it was a panel of people. These were all writers again, but they were all columnists. And that's again, important. These are all people just giving their own view. And that show was very purposefully pulling people from different newspapers that had different political leanings. So you'd have Eleanor Cliff, you know, giving something from sort of the left wing of this all thing. And then you'd have, God help me, Pat Buchanan, you know, give it from the other side of it. Um, but in the end, they were just giving their own opinions. Very rarely were they saying, well, I reported dot, dot, dot. They weren't doing that. They were the columnists. And I think fundamentally what has gone wrong or what has been lost in our understanding of news and information, well, news specifically, is asking yourself how something is presented to you. You know, Right now, um, I think the easiest thing anyone could do is that when you're having a conversation with someone and someone says, well, I heard, it's to simply pause and ask the question, where did you hear it from? And you have to drill down. You know, there's a simple exercise I've done in coaching where you sort of ask the, the question, why? Like five times in a row, because you're getting someone to distill something down to ultimately what it is they're trying to get at. Um, and it's the same thing with asking for people to source their information. Well, I heard they say, who's they? What did you see? What did you read? Can you show it to me? And I know sometimes this is not the most popular uh, position to take at a dinner party. You're not going to be probably invited back when you are the person to say to whip out your phone and say, "Can you show me the article you read this from?" But honestly, as a country and probably as a as a global community, we kind of have to get back to that. And if it sounds like Mike and I are, you know, basically pounding the table, sounding like you know journalism majors, well, a we are, but b we also probably sound like journalism professors because we've been taught by people who actually do this for a living, who legitimately understand. Um, how under how well understanding information for that matter actually works. So when you ask me to sort of make sense of all this, what I would say is it's a really important dance that we do with processing information, but sourcing it. And that process right now is something that we've really have lost. Listen, um, the reason why Nick and I started this show, we've mentioned this a bunch was I was in Florida. I heard people say wild things. And if I was just Mike Leon, I worked at 7-Eleven, you know, I don't know any better, uh, dropped out of high school. And again, not disparaging anybody that's dropped out of high school or works at 7-Eleven. But if I was just that, I would either chime in yay or nay to their argument. The problem is I'm not Mike Leon, 7-Eleven high school dropout. I'm Mike Leon worked as a news producer for three and a half, four years. Mike Leon works as a sports producer. Mike Leon has worked in technology with applications that drive engagement. We're seeing all the stuff that's happening on Facebook. So we started this because we wanted to be informative and educational. Why am I bringing it to news judgment? I thought about this the other day 
somebody showed me uh, a post that uh, a mutual friend of my wife and I's posted about vaccines for children, right? And they took a short clip from a pediatric doctor, a well-respected pediatric doctor, to make their argument as to why they wouldn't get their kid vaccinated. Problem is, I go into that piece, 15-page paper, 85 pieces of source, right, of, of source material, and not advocating for or against, just giving you all the data set and where the FDA stages are, what the clinical trials, how many people, how many people took the placebo, like different numbers and data sets within this 15-page paper that I highly doubt that person read, but they took two lines and said, this is what I want to use. And then they posted it to their social channels without sourcing it. And that infuriated me because as some, at once I clicked on it and dove down the rabbit hole of who this pediatric doctor is, the, the, the place that she works at, I'm like, this is a legitimate doctor. I've heard of this firm. It's in a major city. Um, you know, it's, it, and, and again, like I mentioned, 70 plus whatever pieces of literature backing this. I was like, this is just that data. She manipulated that to quote it for social media. So there is part of that, that the media does do, but what people lack is that news judgment part, the news judgment part of saying car fire in Queens. And, and here's a perfect example. What happened with Kobe Bryant, you know, last year in January of 2020, look how fast TMZ reported it. Look how fast the outlets picked up on it with lack of information. One had Rick Fox on the helicopter with him. Another outlet had nobody on the plane with him, uh, on the helicopter with him. Uh, some, somebody had two of his daughters on with him. So the set of facts r remain. There's been a helicopter crash. It's in Calabasas, right? It involves Kobe Bryant. The other facts are in dispute. So when you are talking about news judgment, you need to understand that Fox News, 8 o'clock, cannot be your source of truth. CNN, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, can't be your source of truth. What needs to be your source of truth is the stories that Fox, CNN, MSNBC, Bloomberg, Reuters, AP News, NPR, are all the New York Times, like we just had Maggie Astor on, um, Washington Post, Wall, Wall Street Journal, all of those commonalities that you see across stories if they're published in those reputable sources, you have to take the series of facts and say, okay, now across these 10 sets of places, I've been able to accumulate that this story is true. Kobe Bryant did die in a helicopter crash and, and it happened in Calabasas. Okay. And it happened at 2 PM Eastern time. That is why I brought this back because I have been seeing a lot on social media. And sometimes we play this boogeyman game of, the media is responsible for this and that divisiveness, right? CNN changing their background and their chirons to match the virus strand is fear mongering. Um, Tucker Carlson, what he's doing at eight o'clock from his pulpit uh, is not helpful, but he's an opinion commentator. So he's just like a jester. So we don't pay him any mind. Like there are so many different things pulling us left and right. Um, this show, I want this show to be boring. What we, you and I do is boring. And you know why I love that it's boring? Because that means we're doing something right. We're doing the news. We're informing and educating people. We're having people on that cover stuff. You heard Maggie right there, right? The focus of her beat has not been what's happening in Congress, 
but she was able to speak intelligibly about it because of other congressional reporters. She's able to source other stuff from the, the other reporters that are doing the beat at her organization. That's news judgment, folks. That's the point of it. You don't know something. Don't pluck an opinion from somewhere else that you saw from an opinion from somebody else. You have to be able to source things. Treat it similar to a lot of the journalists and correspondents that we've had on the program, right? They take two or three sources before they go to print something. An editor reviews it. Does these follow-up questions similar to like a checklist? Where's this coming from? Did you source this? Did you do that? Um, you know, Mike Emanuel told you about that. Do you have the left opinion here? Do you have the right opinion in here? You know, things like that. And people, because they're lazy, not defining them as people, but their search habits don't feel like doing that. And I wanted to make that a point of emphasis by really showcasing how it's done at two different news agencies and what you should you know, a, a takeaway with you when you watch two different segments, both in primetime hours on two different networks. So I hope you got a little bit of that um, analysis. And I, I, again, I would impart to everybody, continue to support local journalism. We've supported a bunch of local journalists on the show and correspondents. Continue to download the Reuters app, download the Bloomberg app, download the NPR app, you know, AP News, you should have AP News. They have an app. Like you have to accumulate as much sourced information in the news sector before you hit send on a tweet, before you hit push on a Facebook message or, or a Facebook post. I want people to stop doing that and be more informed. I hate to pick on that person that did that, but unfortunately, that mistruth was published to her 600 followers. And even if X percent of engagement take that away and say, see, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid because this person, this doctor said it's not true. That is not true. All you got to do is click in it, dive deep into the research. It's 15 pages and, you know, 70 plus sourced pieces of information. So that was my takeaway for for news judgment. I My big thank you to Maggie Astor for coming on the program today. Uh, she was fantastic. Like I mentioned, follow her, uh, uh, Maggie Astor, on Twitter. Um, and you can check out all the work that she's done at the New York Times. Support, support local journalism. Um, for this show, YouTube, video clips. You want to watch the video clips? Nick is smashing the subscribe button. Nah, no, he's not. You know what? We stopped stop smashing the subscribe button. Yeah, we, we had Ron... Okay, yeah, Ron, so we ridicule the practice. And I trust Ronald. Exactly, exactly. Ron was saying we're doing like 15-year-olds hitting the smash <laughs> button. So we're going to stop doing that. Uh, audio podcast platforms, you know them by now. Apple, Spotify, Google. Please continue to subscribe. Leave us a five-star review and comment, please. Are you going to get that smoke from Nick Saveri? Uh, Patreon. Become a Patreon subscriber and get some more bonus content from all of our episodes that you have listened to. Uh, we've got some great Patreon clips coming up in the coming weeks from different folks that we've had on the program and on social media, IG, TikTok, Twitter, at Can We Please Talk Podcast on Twitter, at Can We Please Talk. As always, I am Mike Leon. And here to represent a, damn, I screwed it up. And here to represent a very strong brand. I am Nick Saveri and, and very excited for, for my buddy to go from double coverage to one-on-one -on -one coverage oh that's right my, the birth of my second child is upcoming we're leaving in nick's mistake to make him look back thank you everybody so much continued success to all of you listening we thank you so much we couldn't do it without you have a good one read some newspapers <laughs> <laughs>